This is The Doctor Is In, your bi-weekly podcast that discusses all things technical and not so technical. The Doctor Is In podcast is produced by ARRL, the National Association for Amateur Radio, and sponsored by DX Engineering, helping you shrink the globe. See their website at www.dxengineering.com. And now, here's your host, QST editor Steve Ford, WB8IMY, and the doctor himself, Joel Hallis, W1ZR. Hello and welcome to The Doctor Is In. I'm Steve Ford, WB8IMY. And I'm Joel Hallis, W1ZR. Joel, it's time to talk about time. All right. Well, uh, well, should we say universal coordinated time, UTC, or can I mangle French here? Sure, why not? All of our French language speaking listeners, please cover your ears at this moment. It, it All I get is temps. That, that can't be right. Temps universel coordonnant? No. No. <laughs> I'd pass on that one. <laughs> Or I, I I could do it as my my father would have done it, you know. Tamps Universal Coordinone, you know, but no. UTC, Coordinated Universal Time, which is uh, the basis of all logging and many other things at amateur radio and in many other industries, too. Absolutely. And um, it, it is the abbreviation for Coordinated Universal Time with the sequence of letters as um, written in French because it's an ITU standard and they do that in Switzerland and um, they speak French in that part of Switzerland, I guess. It's it's functionally identical to what we used to call Greenwich Mean Time and uh, in the military we used to call it Zulu Time, both used for many years. They may still use them in some places. And this is the the time at the prime meridian, zero degrees of azimuth, which runs through Greenwich, England, just across the Thames from downtown London. I've been there. Me too. And home of the British Naval Observatory, which is now a museum. And that defined GMT as the world standard going back at least 300 years. Yeah. And um, that was before radio, of course. But it wasn't before navigation, and the British, of course, were very big on navigating and ruling the world and all that. The sun never set on the British Empire. That's right, or the daughter. But it is also the home of the Cuddy Sark, one of the last and perhaps the fastest tea clipper ship, circa 1869. And that's uh, open for visiting also and worth a trip if you're worth a visit if you're in the neighborhood. I think at, uh, at the Royal Observatory in Greenwich, if I recall correctly, they have the meridian in uh, there's a marker in the floor of where the prime meridian is, ah. where zero you know goes through there. Right. Zero longitude, I should say. Yeah, yeah it's, um, it's a big deal for navigation because if you know what time it is in Greenwich and then you're on a ship someplace east or west of there and you see what time the local noon is where the sun is directly overhead, the difference in the time is, uh, you know, it's 24 hours to go all the way around the uh, 360 degrees. So the that whatever fraction of that uh, difference in the time you have is the amount you're uh, east or west of the meridian. So it makes navigation very easy. In fact, I read a book some time back um, called Sailing Around the World Alone by a guy who built his own boat in 1890 or something, 30-foot uh, sloop trying to escape his wife, which worked. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> he sailed around the world. His only navigating instrument was an alarm, wind-up alarm clock with just an hour hand. <laughs> <laughs> and he used that to navigate all the way around the world. So he was mainly going east and west, although he had to go north and south in places too. Yes. Very, um, very interesting story and lots of interesting things he ran into in the process. Now, UTC, of course, in amateur radio is extremely important. I know a lot of new hams have never heard of the concept of universal coordinated time, of having one time 
you know, like in the Lord of the Rings, one ring to rule them all, one one time to be the standard for the entire world. So it, it's a, this is not a podcast devoted to new hams, obviously, but still, it's a new concept for them to, to grasp. That's right. Even some experienced hams who tend to talk locally may not encounter this, but everything you do in terms of um, QSLing or, or confirming contacts and stuff, it only works if the times are the same. You go put something yes. in the logbook of the world, it has to be within so many minutes of, of uh, when the other person put it in. And if you have the day wrong because you're on the other side of the date line or you have the uh, time wrong, it's not going to work. And you put it on a QSL card, it's not going to show up in the guy's log because most guys keep their logs in uh, UTC, as I do. I have a clock at my station that uh, is in UTC. In fact, my computer clock is set up so it shows both local and UTC time, which is very handy. Oh, yeah. In fact, uh, you bring up a good point about QSLs, uh, and this is part of that same concept that's hard for some hams to get their minds around. And it's, you know, not only used by radio, but... um, it was used for hundreds of years in the train service, other kinds of transportation kind of things in Europe. They cross uh, date lines and timelines, not date lines so much, but uh, time zones frequently. They had trains running every which way. It's interesting. In, in fact, you'd think that um, UTC or Greenwich Mean Time would be the time that they use in England, but they don't. Of course, they use no. Central European time, which is the time in Central Europe because the commerce is all kind of coordinated with uh, the Europeans. So they, you know, it's, uh, I don't know if, if UTC is, is actually used as a time any place, probably someplace. It could be. I mean, I know that when I was in London, one of the things that I had to get used to was the fact that the British pressed their time using the 24-hour right. format. And so if they said, oh, we're having dinner at 1800, I had to think quickly, let's see now, what, what time is that in terms of what I'm used to? Oh, six o'clock at night. Okay, got it. Yeah. Exactly. Well, that, 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 well I guess that's easy for me. I guess having been in the military, they use that all the time. But anyway, it is the time. And that's one aspect of of time. The other aspect of time to think about is um, the timing of digital mode communication itself. Some digital communication can be referred to as synchronous or time synchronous in that they look for signals only at certain times or certain parts of each minute, for example. And uh, the the extreme of that is is bit synchronous communication in which is actually a clock pulse sent along with the signal or derived from the signal in some cases. And uh, you only look for a signal during, let's say, the leading edge of that clock pulse. And that has a lot of advantages because it avoids the problem of you trying to decide whether that was a signal or noise during some interval that there wouldn't have been a signal anyway. So you just look during that time and it's usually much clearer whether you have a signal or not. The digital modes that we use, I I don't think any of them are bit synchronous in that sense. No. But they're fairly synchronous in terms of the fraction of the minute that we're in. And I'm not sure what the threshold is on FT8, for example, but it's some small number of seconds. Yeah. In fact, uh, my experience with FT8 has been that if my computer clock is out of sync or if the other station's computer clock is out of sync, by more than two seconds, I won't be able to decode his signal. And, and it's you know it's even worse than it sounds because... What it means is when you look, it looks like there's nobody there because everybody That's else right. is on the right time. So so you're just not getting anything. You say, oh, the band's dead again, or I should go out and collect stamps or something. But <laughs> but really what's happening is your clock is off. And yes. it's important um, if you're, you know, all these modes are decoded by computer. It's important that your computer's clock, the Windows clock, if you're on Windows, be synchronized to UTC. And there are a number of ways of doing that. 
but uh, there is a mechanism in the computer that allows you to synchronize to a uh, time server. And uh, the best one is the NIST, National Institute of Standards and Technology, which are WWV. There are a couple of servers that do that. You can click on them yes. in your clock settings menu. You have to go in a couple layers deep. I have that actually set up on my desktop so I can go right to it. And if I'm going to do anything with digital modes, I before I do anything else, I sync up. Even though you can set it for automatic, but I'm never comfortable with that because I don't know when it thought it was a good idea to do that. And different exactly different computers have different um, drift rates and so forth. Windows, I think, tends to only do it, uh, and I'm not an expert when it comes to this aspect of Windows, but maybe just a couple of times a day, maybe only once it's initially yeah. turned on. And the computer could drift enough that that can be problematic, sure. Absolutely. So so just to be safe, whenever, before I start a session, I synchronize then. I hope that, you know, it'll last long, as long as my attention span. <laughs> now, there are some software clients that you can install and they kind of run in the background and they keep synchronizing on a on a frequent basis. I know one popular one uh, for Windows was called Dimension 4. That's still out there if you Google that. Uh, the one that I use is called NTP, Nancy Tango Papa, and uh, that's at a website called Meinberg, M-E-I-N-B-E-R-G, if you, if you Google that. Uh, that's worked very well for me. Again, it runs in the background. You don't even know it's there, but I know it's there because when I'm operating FT8, pretty consistently, I see that I'm within about a tenth of a second of all the stations that I'm seeing. Unless, of course, they're out of sync. I, yeah. Nothing I can do about that. But. Well, there are usually enough stations out there that you can tell whether it's you or them. <laughs> yeah, well, they, exactly, yeah. And also, if you really want to get into it, uh, you can attach a small GPS receiver to oh, your right. computer and be synchronizing with their clocks, their yep. rubidium clocks on the satellites. The little GPS receivers are down to, I think, what, 15 bucks on Amazon, something mm -hmm. like that. And then there's a piece of software. It's called, uh, I'll try to spell it out, but it's N-M-E-A time two, numeral two, uh, all one word. And uh, if you Google that, you'll find it. And what it does is it takes the time information from the GPS receiver, and then it syncs your computer to it. Then your computer is hyper, hyper accurate. But that's a little farther yeah. than I need to go. But Yeah, well, it doesn't hurt to be more accurate than you need to be, but it does hurt to be less accurate than you need to be. <laughs> yes, that's true. Absolutely. Well, I'll tell you what, Joel, let's hear from DX Engineering, and we'll be back. All right, I'll be here. Our fellow hams have told us how much they love receiving the DX Engineering catalog. It's 132 pages of amateur radio heaven, packed with competitively priced equipment. You'll find everything from multiband Yagis to whip antennas, the latest bass transceivers to mobile radios, and every accessory under the sun. But the catalog only represents a small part of what DX Engineering offers. When you visit DXEngineering.com, you'll find thousands of items from trusted names like ICOM, Yesu, Kenwood, and Alinko. There's world-famous antennas from OptiBeam, E-Antennas, and M-Squared, Roan and American Towers, plus many more. And shop a wide selection of innovative DX Engineering brand products. They're designed and manufactured by our team of amateur radio enthusiasts for hams just like you. Plus, you get the fastest shipping in the ham universe, and shipping is free on most orders over $99. Experience ham radio heaven at dxengineering.com. That's dxengineering.com. 
And we're back, Joel, and I have a question from Michael, WB7WEA, and he's asking, an article by Michael Sapp, WA3TTS, in the April 2019 antenna issue of QST, describes the U, the E-W-E, that describes, of course, the shape of the antenna, the U. Uh, A web search comes up with several descriptions of the antenna, dimensions, tuning, and other details, but it's always discussed as a receive-only antenna. Why can't this be used as a transmitting antenna? Perfectly good question. It is a logical question, and um, I suppose you actually could transmit with an antenna like that. Anything you can receive from, you can transmit from. But the idea of this class of an antenna, which includes a number of other ones going back to the beverage, perhaps the first in this group, which was patented by Harold Beverage, W2BML, in 1921, is that they're very directional such that they uh, can focus on this desired signal. Uh, The beverage is just a long wire and it receives essentially off the end, but it also receives other signals which don't combine as well and and, um, signals and noise tend to be uh, reduced, whereas the desired signal is enhanced by the nature of the antenna. So what it does is it gives you a better signal-to-noise ratio on receive than the typical antenna, but it's very inefficient. You get a very small percentage of the signal you'd get from some other antenna. So you have a choice. You can use an antenna like your transmit antenna might give you a very good receive level, but the problem is the noise and interference will be much higher and you won't be able to copy it. With a receive-only low-noise antenna, you have a much weaker signal, but the signal-to-noise ratio is better. So you need to crank it up or have an additional preamp to use it. So what it means is that the efficiency on receive is a couple of percent to perhaps up to five or ten percent depending on the nature of the antenna, but the signal-to-noise ratio is much better. Now if you were to transmit through this, of course you'd have to make the components Yes. Large enough so they could handle the transmit power, but most of them are fairly straightforward and it wouldn't be a problem. Preamp probably doesn't work well backwards, but you got to <laughs> switch that out. Put 100 watts into it, yes. Yeah, once. <laughs> once. So you could transmit into it, but the signal that goes where you want it, where the other station is, will be at 1% or 5% or 10%. So if you have 100 watts going out, it gets received at the other end as if it were a 1 watt or a 5 or 10 watt. Uh, transmitter. And the problem is the station at the other end doesn't have the benefit of improved signal-to-noise ratio. So he has the same noise, but your signal is now down 20 or 30 decibels, and he can't hear you at all. <laughs> so that's the problem with using it on transmit. Well, that's no good. So that's why the these receive-only antennas are used just for receive, not because they couldn't be used for transmitting, but because they don't transmit very well. <laughs> I always knew there was a reason for that. Well, thank you, Joel. My pleasure. If you have a question for the doctor, email us at doctor at ARRL.org. The Doctor is In podcast is sponsored by DX Engineering at www.dxengineering.com. Background music provided by Purple Planet at www.purple-planet.com. This podcast is copyright ARRL. All rights are reserved. Until next time, I'm QST Managing Editor Becky Schoenfeld, W1BXY, 73, and thanks for listening.